The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. You're watching Squawk Box. U.S. yields scale fresh highs and the S&P 500 moves deeper into bear market territory as we see equities take a more uh, aggressive decline on expectations. The Fed will go harder on interest rates as producer prices hold near a record annual pace. There's no doubt in my mind that as the economy continues to slow down and contract, that we're going to have a fallout and an increase in default rates in loans and bonds. And that'll, again, be an opportunity for our platform. Meanwhile, Double Line Capital's Jeffrey Gunlack going big, calling for a 200 basis point uh, hike from the Fed, while investor Bill Ackman says the central bank is failing to control inflation. We hear more from private equity heavyweights as super return kicks off in Berlin. Right elsewhere, Chinese retail sales continue to decline whilst factory data beats expectations as Beijing authorities warn they are in a race against time to contain the current COVID outbreak. And Coinbase cuts 18% of its staff as the crypto winter apparently sets in whilst the Galaxy Digital CEO Michael Novogratz says we could be nearing a bottom. Bitcoin will lead the markets back out of this, this Fed tight. The moment the Fed flinches, the moment you know, how pauses because the economy is really starting to roll over. You're going to see Bitcoin explode north. So very good morning, everybody. You know how this goes. We are in a blackout period, but somehow uh, through osmosis, through mind control, (laughs) maybe through telling journalists in off-the-record briefings that they should now be signalling 75 basis points is on the table. However they've done it, the message seems to be getting through to the financial media that the Federal Reserve is now, quote, widely expected to deliver a 75 basis point hike at the policy meeting later today. Well, Fed Chair Jerome Powell was previously expected to deliver a half a a point increase before a series of reports over the last 48 hours drove market expectations higher. The FOMC clearly under pressure to deliver a strong and aggressive response to surging inflation with CPI CPI at highs uh, not seen since 1981. And of course, producer prices are rising nearly 11% in May. Uh, Alongside, obviously, the um, official, unofficial Uh, suggestions that we will get 75 basis points, which the uh, financial media have been propagating. We've had a whole slew of the great and the good in the financial industry just um, putting forth their own opinions as to what should actually happen here. Bill Ackman has claimed equity and credit markets have lost confidence in the Fed. The CEO of Pershing Square Capital tweeted that the only way for Jerome Powell to restore credibility 
would be to now hike rates by 75 basis points today, adding that the Fed has lost control of inflation. Meanwhile, Double Line Capital CEO Jeffrey Gunlack has called for even more aggressive action, tweeting the Fed funds rate should be hiked to 3%. Well, billionaire investor Leon Cooperman expects a recession in the United States in 2023. Speaking to CNBC, the chair and CEO of the Omega family office cited two factors behind his forecast. The price of oil or the Fed will push us into a recession sometime next year. I think there's too much liquidity in the system to experience this recession this year, but I think we'll have a recession sometime in 2023 and the market uh, will, uh, on average, go lower. Inflation is likely to be worse than generally expected. Powell has been very wrong on inflation. And while he has some cover from the Ukraine war, the reality is he was wrong in a very big way even before the war. The word transitory was inappropriate. So Adam likes the bit where I rip up the rundown every day. He's, okay. he's being the director. So, yeah. so I just you, you, you got me thinking, and right. anyone who comes on this channel... Uh has a view. Yeah. Of course, they wouldn't, well, what would we want them for otherwise? But they also have a view which is backed by a position. Okay. Now, I don't know that Mr. Gundlach or Mr. Ackman have a position, but mm. when someone says 200 basis points, knowing that that would have stunning ramifications for an equity market, it's extreme volatility. I can't say for sure that the market would go down aggressively, but it would certainly be a shock to the system about what the Fed knows and what the market doesn't already know. Mm. And as you say, I, I love your comments about osmosis. You know, I, you're, you're right. talking to a kindred spirit about yes. that kind of cynicism. So I had a quick look back at what Mr. Gundlach's been saying recently. And uh, he said on March the 16th this year, uh, Jeffrey Gundlach, I think he was telling CNBC, said he would buy Bitcoin over gold in the short term. Mm. On March the 16th, right. I will buy gold, uh, buy Bitcoin over gold in the short term. So I yep. thought, well, you know, this man is a, is he seen as one of the market gurus? I think mm. there's, we often use the term guru quite mm. liberally. Mm. So I had a quick look at what the pricing of uh, Bitcoin per versus gold has been since March the 16th to now. Again, I've done all this since while you were at the wall because you just mm. piqued my interest. And that's what I like about the show. You say very interesting things and it leads a lot of investors to, to have a look. So on March the 16th, Bitcoin was trading at 40,685, ladies and gentlemen. Gold was trading at 1909. So absolutely, gold has gone down mm. by around about $100. Bitcoin has gone down by around about $20,000. It's halved. Um, I'll, I'll just leave that one there. What I'm saying is Mr. Gunlek is a very smart man. He's made yeah. more money than I will ever, ever make. But he was saying to CNBC, or certainly the article we published on March the 16th, Gundlach says he would buy Bitcoin over gold in the short term. Bitcoin has halved. Gold has lost 100 bucks. Uh, there is a view that the market has no memory, right? Um, I mean, you and I have been sat around this desk, I don't know, for the, best, for the thick end of 30 years talking about these markets. And uh, isn't it incredible how short-term most people's market memory is? And that's why I think this time round there is so much confusion as to what is happening here because I know it's a well-worn saw, but there aren't that many people around who remember inflation at these levels. And so, understandably, even with uh, some of these grandees of the investment world, um, what they're saying at this point doesn't reflect on uh, 40 years, maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years of experience in the markets. Mm. But there really aren't that many people around who can remember 
um, inflation 40 years ago who were actively involved sure. in having to make investment decisions. And what we've had, I think, since the global financial crisis, and even before that, actually, probably from about the mid-90s, is these cycles of financial innovation where new products have come to the Better market. Better products, Jeffrey. Better some them, products. Some of them. Some of the fintech. 50 times leveraged Bitcoin. Surely that's a better product for the retail investor. Well, if I had Spacks. to... Look, if I had to hang my hat on one piece of financial innovation, which I think has been groundbreaking in the last 30 years, it's probably the invention of the ETF, right? Absolutely. An opportunity for investors to get away from being held hostage by high-fee fund management I industry think underperforming gurus, fund management. And they've been able to effectively track the market. So ETFs that have provided some form of index tracking, I think has been the most positive market innovation we've had per, for, for personal finance purposes. But a lot of the rest of it, quite frankly, the cycles come and go and it's boom and bust. And it's only later when mm. your people like Jeffrey Gunlack go, yeah, that Bitcoin call perhaps wasn't so oh, great. Come on, time. Jeff. What's wrong with uh, uh, was it uh, securitized mortgage-backed obligation? Oh, CDOs, uh, CDO cubes, CDO CDOs. squared. What's wrong? With, what's wrong with SPACs for the retail investor? What's wrong with Bitcoin for the retail? I think you're being very, very. What's wrong with leveraged right. Bitcoin for the investor? Right. You and I have missed them. Just, just take that tongue out of your cheek. Mr. Sedgwick. And oh, there's not many of them watching who don't know <coughs> I've got it in my cheek, is it? If they do, then they're watching the wrong show. <laughs> Okie dokie, everybody. Sorry, Adam, we had that chat, but I'm sure you enjoyed it. Um, he did. He did, really did. So the US markets, and look, again, I make some calls which are horrendous, and I make one or two which are moderately pertinent. We say that as well. And the call I made yesterday was that I found it very hard to see how a rally could be sustained, because we did come out of the gates a little bit uh, in Europe. Uh, looking at a rally, looking at a rally on the base of US future rises. But I said to you all, didn't I? I said, how do we get a sustained rally when we haven't had the main course? We've had a few canapes, uh, possibly even a small uh, bit of starter. Starters are often the best, aren't they? So we had the CPI data from Friday, and Jeff said, of course, the osmosis that had come through there. All of a sudden, everybody knows it's 75 basis points. How did that happen in a closed blackout period? Again, another big question. But the point is the market did erode those gains throughout the session as well. The rally we saw in all kinds of assets from European equities to US futures uh, to then the US session to, to things like Bitcoin as well. It eroded throughout the session and everyone just thought it's a bit soggy, but they weren't prepared to sell down aggressively. As such, I know the Dow's had five out of five to the downside, but not a meteoric move uh, considering where we have been. S&P down four tenths of a percent. NASDAQ just pottering around the flat line as well. But the Treasuries continue to pick up. 3.445 is the current yield as well. Again, inversion on the five and ten as well. The PPI data confirm what a lot of us know. It is sticky and it is hard. And even when you strip out the 10.8% headline figure, you look at the core, or some people even now try to look at the core core, stripping out even more volatile factors. The fact of the matter is, it is still unnervingly high for the Federal Reserve as well. And then you get the commentary from the likes of Gundlach as well, 200 basis points, knowing full well that the Fed can't do 200 basis points in one clip without creating potentially a major market event. 10-year uh, US Treasury long-term performance. I haven't seen this one. Let's have a look. What have we got?
Oh, thank you very much. Well, it should be, and it is. Look, there you go. Uh, so this is the yield picking up as well. Uh, you want to see a yield picking up? Have a look at the BTP. There's all kinds of noises about something that, dare I say it, he and I have been talking about for a very long time, is where is the tension point for European peripheral sovereign, especially when you've got one of the largest debt markets on the planet at 150% debt to GDP worth a couple of trillion at this moment in time, as opposed to this debt market, which is worth, what, 20-odd trillion dollars? Boom. <laughs> Big numbers. Uh, dollar crosses. Any pressure abating anywhere? No. Look at that. Dollar yen, 134.89. The euro still under pressure, 104. The pound? Oh, great. The halcyon post-Brexit days for our purchasing power, 119.98. Again, tongue in cheek, just in case you've, you've just turned on the channel, you didn't realize this is more of a, a cynical, journalistic approach to financial markets rather than uh, slavish sycophancy. Yes, Jeff? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes. We yes. love those words, don't we? Yes. Yes. Good. Right. Okay. What are you working on? You got something good? Yeah. Uh, always. Yeah. He's always got something up his sleeve. No matter how many times I turn to him, surprising, he's always got something. All those bits of paper have to mean something at least. Uh, JP Morgan has upped its, it's a company, uh, outlook for it, uh, this week's uh, Federal Reserve meeting to forecast a 75 basis point hike at the osmosis after CPI on Friday. How did everyone get there? Chief US economist Michael Farroli told CNBC the central bank is central bank is causing volatility. I think they're causing it. Uh, look, and, and inflation doesn't come down magically. Uh, it comes down through people spending less. Uh, and that's going to happen with tighter financial conditions. Uh, and one of those is higher mortgage rates, uh, stronger dollar, uh, weaker equities. So all these things aren't great, but that's, you know, no one said this was going to be an easy path to get inflation down from these pretty elevated levels. Uh, for more on Leon Cooperman's recession warning as well, check out CNBC.com. It is rather good today. Well, for all of those looking for stimulus from the Chinese central bank, you didn't get it. The central bank has left median term interest rates unchanged for the fifth month running. That is in line, though, with expectations. The PBOC also kept the seven-day reverse repo rate at 2.1%. Meanwhile, factory activity picked up in May. Retail sales fell, albeit at a slower-than-expected uh, pace, pointing to a partial recovery in the world's second-largest economy, which has been hampered by COVID lockdowns. Sam, we say... Uh, a partial recovery, but this was still negative 6.7% for the May retail sales number. So there are still some challenges here for the Chinese consumer. Yep, that's right, Jeff. Consumption is still weak. That was certainly underscored by that contraction again today. While at a headline level, as you say, some of the numbers actually look pretty encouraging. It did point to a degree of stabilisation and signs of a recovery because a quick take, actually, the economic activity did better than expected in the month of May. As we did see some of those COVID curbs eased and also the policymakers thrashing out more stimulus. But there are still a few concerning trends here. And that is, as you say, consumption remains weak, but also the labour market. Because while we did actually see the jobless rate coming down at a national level, it actually hit a record high in 31 of the biggest cities. Now, these things go hand in hand, of course, because if you have a job, you're more inclined to spend your money. But if you're locked down in your home, 
home, you probably can't do either of things. So this really underscores the enormous challenge that the economy is up against and these policymakers are up against as they really stick with the zero COVID strategy. And of course, you've got Beijing now, which is saying that it's a really a race against time in the city to try to curb this latest outbreak that we're seeing there. So really, the numbers that we saw today on the retail sales side of things does suggest that perhaps some of those reopenings helped things. We saw policymakers, of course, rolling out more stimulus, trying to certainly spur some of that consumption. But it does suggest that people are holding back on their spending because of the uncertainties around the COVID situation. And as I say, now you've got the situation in Beijing where they've actually shut down a number of entertainment venues, which, of course, won't bode well for the consumption picture either. Now, in an encouraging sign, as I say, we did see industrial output actually turning more positive, although it was only marginal. But uh, the market was actually looking for a contraction there for another month. But we did see that actually ticking up, doing better than expected, because we did see a lot of those factories actually resuming production after being shut in the month of April. And that was largely consistent with those double-digit export numbers that we got in the month of May, which no doubt helped that as well. Now, the fixed asset investment side of things was also a bright spot. It actually helped held up quite well. We do know, of course, that this has been seen as really a big growth driver in Q2, given that the government is looking more on the fiscal side of things. Uh, so certainly all in all, in summary, you could say that it was an encouraging data set today, but still some weak pockets in the economy. And that will no doubt be fueling those concerns about a Q2 contraction and why, of course, guys, uh, back to you in London, we have, of course, seen uh, these more conservative, conservative GDP growth assumptions and these downgrades far lower than that 5.5% GDP growth target the government's punching for. Thank you very much indeed, Samantha. Great fan of your work. Excellent stuff. Okay, coming up on the show, pariah or supplier? What a great head. Who wrote that? Pariah or supplier? I like that. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden prepares to meet uh, Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman in a controversial visit to the kingdom. We'll have some more details after the break. And just a reminder, you can always catch up with the programme uh, on the podcast, the build-up to dis- today's uh, Federal Reserve decision. Uh, check out the Squawk Box podcast where you get all good podcasts. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. The U.S. President Joe Biden is set to meet the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman during his Middle East trip next month. It marks a reversal in policy concerning the country he branded a pariah following the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, Biden is expected to seek a solution to soaring fuel costs in the United States and look to secure a bump in Saudi oil production. 
OPEC has reaffirmed its forecast that oil demand will exceed pre-pandemic levels this year. But the group said that the war in Ukraine, as well as continued uncertainty surrounding the pandemic, could pose headwinds. Quick look at the oil price. If you noticed yesterday, and I'm sure you all slavishly looked at it as much as I did, Brent... Brent got up to 125 yesterday, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is it, this is the pop. Uh, but it didn't happen, as you can see, back down to 121. So let's speak to Martin Dratz, who is head of European Oil and Gas at Morgan Stanley. And just to say, Martin is one of the few people out there you should listen to, ladies and gentlemen. So with that caveat, Martin, it better be good. Uh, Martin, good morning to you, my friend. Nice to see you. Uh, why hasn't the oil price gone much higher I know it's high, I know it's painful for a lot of economies, but why haven't we seen an aggressive pop to the upside, considering the fact that you and a lot of people in the industry are very concerned about the supply and demand dynamic? Good morning, my friend. Yeah, good morning. Um, well, uh, actually, um, there are two things to say about it. Um, what we all look at is the price of, of Brent futures. Uh, that's the thing that most of us uh, have on our screen. Uh, and indeed, as you point out, that is still trading uh, on the front month contract, something like $121 a barrel. Uh, but if you look at the price of physically delivered cargoes, uh, i.e. what we call dated Brent, um, uh, that is a price that reflects oil that is actually delivered, not just a financial instrument. Dated Brent was assessed yesterday uh, at $132 a barrel, so quite significantly higher, which highlights the preference in the market for physical delivery, not just financial instruments. Uh, so that price is already quite a bit higher. And then, and then where you can see the real strength in the oil market um, is arguably in the products. Uh, so crude is still $120, $130 a barrel, but gasoline, diesel, jet fuel is on the whole trading in the order of $170 to $180 a barrel. Um, so an unusually wide spread there. And I think that is reflecting some of the stresses and the strains that exist, not only in the upstream uh, oil production industry, but also in the downstream um, refining industry. So there are pockets where you see um, you, where, where you can see that, that that stress reflected in prices much more answer as ever martin so look historically a lot of the experts turn around and tell me and th that if you inflation adjust actually we're nowhere near uh, the highs that we've seen in previous peaks we should be nearer 200 dollars per barrel or something like that as well um can the economy cope with much higher uh, prices and i say the economy i'm talking about the indian economy the japanese economy and of course the u.s economy because we're talking about economies which are very very sensitive to the price of oil i have my questions whether it would cause a recession cause a recession even at these levels let alone if we go higher yeah uh look to say that that is the billion dollar question is slightly understating it that is the that is the one thing that we are all trying to figure out um when you do supply demand modeling both for crude but also for the products uh, very quickly, um, they point in the direction that this system is really difficult to balance at the moment. Uh, uh, and if we can't supply more, then we need lower demands because ultimately the oil market needs to balance. There are, there are a finite number of molecules in the system. You know, we can't print this stuff. So the oil market must balance. Uh, and if we can't do it via supply, then it has to uh, be via demand. So for the better part of a year or so, we've now all been asking this question that you just asked, which is what is effectively the demand destruction price? Um, and it's been hard to estimate. Um, if you look at uh, the world spending on crude oil, it's something like sort of four and a half to five percent of global GDP at the moment, which is high by historical standards, but 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 by no means a record. In the early 1980s, uh, it was well over six percent, so that suggests some upside. But then, if you look at where the products already are, where gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel already are, um, yeah, then you'd have to conclude that probably we should be at levels 
where we're not far off that demand destruction price. Now, look, we can say that, but the mobility indicators continue to look good. Aviation looks to have a pretty bullish summer as well. It, it, it's just that demand is very difficult to destroy. And the price at which that happens is a bit of a moving target. We're undoubtedly closer, but I would say probably not there yet. Uh, Martin, let me ask you about um, Biden and the trip to the Middle East. Um, we're, we're talking about the early part of uh, July here, so we're, we're a few weeks away from that. But is there any reason for oil traders to be slightly more cautious coming into the uh, early part of that trip in anticipation that Biden will be seeking some kind of concession around supply? Yeah, uh, when it comes to those types of measures, those sort of government interventions um, uh, sort of in the oil market, um, there are always two questions to ask. First, the first question to ask is what is the physical impact? How many bore barrels could we get? What does it do to actual supply demand modeling? But the second question that you need to ask is what does it signal? What does it really reveal about the true underlying beliefs of those senior policymakers uh, about the future of the oil market? Um, and in many ways, the initial gut reaction of the market is often focused of, on the incremental supply, the actual physical impact. And sure, maybe we can get some more barrels from Saudi Arabia. I would contend that there is some spare capacity, but not an awful lot. Um, I would say that Saudi, Saudi spare capacity alone will probably not solve, uh, solve the, the, the tightness in the market. Um, but at the same time, um, you, if you look at what it reveals, it reveals real worry. It reveals concern. Um, that the oil market is tight, that it's tightening further, and that there are no other obvious solutions in sight. We saw the same with the SPR. An SPR release is unusual. Sure, it brings more uh, oil to the market in the short run, but it also reveals something about how senior policymakers see the future of oil. And in the end, the signaling effect tends to outweigh the near-term supply-demand impact. So I kind of tend to view these, these, these type of things more as bullish over the medium term rather than bearish. Let me ask you about the marginal demand here. Um, the COVID story in China and the Shanghai lockdowns did take some of the gloss off the upside of prices uh, in recent weeks. But the market seems to have moved on and is now kind of ignoring that story, it seems to me. And yet we continue to hear this drip drip of uh, there's further testing going on. There are another 25 million people who are going to have to do another round of tests with the potential that there could be further lockdowns here. We had some industrial production numbers, I think, today, uh, plus 0.7 percent. Not exactly shooting the lights out, these numbers. Um, to what extent uh, is the market going to have to refocus on the risks around Chinese lockdowns? Uh, yeah, um, uh, this is uh, a very important topic. So the um, the oil market clearly went through a soft patch in sort of April and May. You saw this not only in the spot price of oil, we fell back to $100 a barrel um, back in April, uh, but you saw it in a lot of other sort of pricing signals uh, as well. We clearly went through uh, a soft patch. So I would say the market is well aware that, you know, of, of this um, spot um, um, of weakness. The story around this or the market's interpretation uh, has become, well, we lost about 2 million barrels a day of Chinese oil demand in April, and yet that was not enough to drive us significantly below $100 a barrel. Now that China is recovering, uh, we should therefore trade significantly uh, higher. It, it became uh, an interpretation of like, well, even with this, we could not fall below $100 a barrel. And in that sense, the market's interpretation is bullish. But 
Um, nevertheless, if this recovery does not materialize, um, you know, that would be a headwind that none of us should be naive about. If you look at aviation, for example, um, over the next uh, six months or so, we should get about a million barrels a day in jet fuel back if you look at scheduled flights. Uh, but a lot of that depends on Asia, Asia opening up, Asian aviation coming back. So no, um, look, for the time being, we're looking at recovery, slow but gradual. Uh, but if that does not materialize, that is clearly a downside risk. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.